Well, with that said, uh, this morning we finally began our new sermon series in the book of John. The Gospel of John is one of the most loved books in the whole Bible. Uh, Speaking of the Gospel of John, Martin Luther wrote these words, this is the unique, tender, genuine chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the Epistle to the Romans and the Gospel according to John escape, Christianity would be saved. Well, what is the main purpose of the Gospel of John? We don't have to guess because John tells us exactly why he wrote this book. At the end of the book, in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we hope and pray that as we learn from the Gospel of John, you and I would experience more life in our union with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much uh, for giving us so many wonderful reasons to sing this morning. Father, thank you that we are saved through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. Father, we pray that now as we seek to understand John 1, 1 and 2, that you would send your spirit to give each one of us the gift of understanding. Father, we confess that apart from your spirit, we will understand nothing of significance from this passage. Lord, we cry out to you for mercy and grace and strength to comprehend and apply and worship as a result of this passage. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, who is Jesus? That depends on who you ask. If you ask Your Mormon neighbor, he or she will say that Jesus Christ was a man, but through lots of hard work and effort, he became God, and he is the half-brother of Lucifer. If you talk to a Muslim, he or she will tell you that Jesus Christ was a great prophet, not quite as great as Muhammad, and Jesus Christ is not divine. If If you consult that great theologian, Prince Philip, He says that Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Well, what does Fidel Castro think? He said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that symbol of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. Really? Philologist John Allegro argues that Jesus was no more than the code word for an ancient sex cult inspired by hallucinogenic mushrooms. Many years ago, several celebrities, Ben Affleck, Pamela Anderson, Madonna, Ashton Kutcher, Brad Pitt, all wore t-shirts that said across the front, Jesus is my homeboy. So who is Jesus? Is he a man? Is he a prophet? Is he your homeboy or is he something else or someone else entirely? The answer to that question is incredibly 
significant. In fact, I would argue it's eternally significant. What you think, what you believe, what you confess about Jesus will affect where you spend the next hundreds of trillions of years. There is nothing more important this morning than figuring out exactly who Jesus Christ is. And that brings us to John 1, verses 1 and 2. This is going to be a long sermon series in John. In John 1, verses 1 and 2, we learn about the identity of Jesus. We learn about the eternality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, and the community of Jesus. Those are the three points this morning. The eternality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, and the community of Jesus. First is the eternality of Jesus. Look with me at John 1, 1, the first couple of words. In the beginning was the Word. Well, in the beginning of what, John? In the beginning of all things, the beginning of time. Well, how do we know that John is talking about the beginning of time? The opening statement of John 1 closely parallels Genesis 1 in grammar and syntax. And in Genesis 1, which Jennifer just read, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Furthermore, the word was in John 1, is in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means was continuing. If the word was continuing in the beginning, that implies that the word existed before the beginning. In addition, the term beginning, arche, can also mean origin in the sense of a basic cause or the beginning of all things. Most significantly, though, several other texts in the Bible indicate that the Word existed before all things. How about Colossians 1.17? Paul writes, and he, that is the Word, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But that raises the question, who is the word that John is describing? Well, he tells us in John 1.14. In John 1.14, John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, the Word who's always existed, who created all things by the power of speaking, is Jesus Christ Himself, the second member of the Trinity. Well, why does it matter that we confess that Jesus is eternal, that He has always existed, that He was there before the beginning? Why does that matter? Well, the fierce battle over the nature of Christ erupted in Alexandria, Egypt in the third and fourth centuries. Well, who started this fierce battle? A heretic named Arius. Arius was born around 260 AD. Christian History Magazine notes that he was a man of tall stature, an austere countenance, and an ascetic life. He had charming manners and went about from house to house with his sleeveless tunic and scanty cloak, popular especially among the ladies. Arius was a very, very clever and crafty heretic. In fact, he wrote songs to spread his heresy. 
In the middle of the Council of Nicaea, history tells us that he burst into song as he was defending his unorthodox view of Jesus. The song went like this. Arius of Alexandria, I'm the talk of the town. Not very humble. Friend of saints, elect of heaven, <laughs> filled with learning renown. If you want the Lagos doctrine, I can serve it steaming hot. God begat him, and before he was begotten, he was not. Arius had great respect for Jesus. He believed that Jesus was a divine being, but he was created by the Father, not of the same essence as the Father. Therefore, he was not eternal. And if Jesus Christ is not eternal, he's not fully God. If he's not fully God, he cannot atone for our sins on the cross because he is not valuable enough or worthy enough to atone for the sins of all those who trust in him. This really matters. God raised up a brave soldier for Christ by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius fought vigilantly against Arius the heretic for orthodox Christology. At one point, someone said to Athanasius, Athanasius, the whole world is against you, which was true. He was one of the only voices in the fourth century arguing for the biblical view of Jesus. And he said, well, if the whole world's against me, let it be so. So his nickname was Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. What a great nickname. Athanasius fled for his life five times, fighting for the eternality of Jesus. Why did he care so much about Jesus being eternal and equal with the Father? Because he knew that what we think about Jesus matters. If Jesus Christ is not eternal, co-eternal with the Father, then he's not God. And if he's not God, he can't save us. So Dave, are you saying that Jesus Christ is fully God? That brings us to the second point. First is the eternality of Jesus. Second is the divinity of Jesus. In 2020, Ligonier Ministries published the results of a massive survey that they did, surveying thousands of people in America to figure out what do Americans believe about Jesus Christ and Christian doctrine in general. 52% of Americans polled thought that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 30% of self-identified evangelicals taught that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. A third of evangelicals, self-professed, self-identified evangelicals, do not affirm the deity of Jesus. Therefore, they are not evangelicals, to be clear. 55% of Americans believed that Jesus was the first and greatest of all created beings. In other words, half of America are Arians. <laughs> and Arius was condemned as a heretic at 325 of the Council of Nicaea. 
That shouldn't surprise us because roughly 15 years ago, 20 years ago, Dan Brown wrote his best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code, that sold a measly 80 million copies. I've read it. It's great fiction. Now, it is fiction, but he writes with an agenda like all writers do. And in that book, he strongly suggests, or implies, really teaches, that the early church did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. He says that what happened was, in a back room somewhere in Nicaea in the fourth century, a bunch of shady politicians got together, and they all agreed together for political reasons to affirm that Jesus Christ was, in fact, God. Bart Ehrman who is a notorious and prolific author and professor of religion at UNC Chapel Hill, also argues the same types of things. When I used to work at State Farm Insurance, I was talking with a coworker who was raised in the church, and she said, you know, Dave, I, I have no problem affirming that God exists, but I'm not convinced that Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, sometimes the variety of opinions out there on Jesus cause us to wonder, is the Bible unclear on the deity of Jesus? And the answer is a resounding no. <laughs> the Bible is crystal clear. John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. Dan Brown, put that in your fiction pipe and smoke it. <laughs> the deity of Christ was not invented by church leaders in 325 at Nicaea. The early church confessed that Jesus was God. We learn in verse 1 that Jesus is eternal, which is an attribute of deity, we also learn in verse 1 that Jesus is the Word. That word, Word, in the Greek is the word logos. And John probably had two meanings in mind here. In the Gospel of John, we'll find out that John will often use one word to mean two different things, to, to give depth to his meaning. So John is probably referring here to two things. He's probably referring to the Word in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, over and over and over again, we see that it was the Word, the Word, the Word that spoke the universe into existence. Jesus Christ is the Word of God incarnate. Logos in Greek philosophy was the principle that unified everything and brought harmony and order to the universe. Jesus is both those things. Again, John's making it very clear that Jesus is God, but just to make sure we don't miss his point, he says at the end of verse 1, and the Word was God. And other texts of Scripture make this very, very clear. Next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and says, the Bible does not teach that Jesus is God, read these next five texts to him or her. John 20, 27 to 28 then he said to Thomas, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger in here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, Jesus did not say, whoa, Thomas, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't worship me, I'm just a man. No, he accepted worship from Thomas. Romans 9, 5. 
To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. One more text, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, just to make sure we get the point. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When I was a first-year seminarian, I thought I was kind of a big deal in the area of theology and apologetics. But then I realized that most first-year seminarians think they're kind of a big deal in the area of theology and apologetics. I had to get my hair cut, so I ended up going to a barber pretty close to the seminary, and I thought, I'm going to engage this hairdresser in gospel conversation and, and prove to all the heretics that they're wrong. Bring on the opponents, I will tear them to shreds. So she's cutting my hair, and I very tactfully try to bring up the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I quickly find out that she is a Jehovah's Witness. But then I realize she is a well-trained Jehovah's Witness. And then I realized Dave Farley was not a big deal in theology or apologetics because she very quickly confounded me. Most Jehovah's Witnesses will say to you, oh, well, John 1 does not prove that Jesus Christ is divine. Well, how do they argue that? They claim that in John 1, 1, we should translate things, not the word was God, but the word was a God. And that's because the word theos, the, word, the Greek word for God, is not preceded by a definite article, the. Therefore, they argue it's best translated as the word was a God, not the God. By the way, Jehovah's Witnesses are modern-day Arians. And I love to graciously point out to them when they come to my door, you guys were condemned as heretics at 325 at the Council of Nicaea, but I love you, and Jesus loves you, and he's God, and you need to worship him. Now, how should we respond? Don't respond like that. But, <laughs> but how should we respond to Jehovah's Witnesses who come to our door and argue because there's no, there's no definite article preceding Theos in John 1 that this does not prove the deity of Jesus. Well, you should respond like this. Greek and English do not use definite articles in the same way. According to Caldwell's rule of Greek grammar, a very well-established rule of Greek grammar, the lack of an article does not necessarily imply indefiniteness, that is, a God. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It all depends on the context. Now, I could say a lot more about Greek grammar, but you'd forget it all in 30 seconds. Far more importantly, you don't have to understand Greek grammar because every translation but the J-dub translation translates this as the word was God because they all understand Caldwell's rule of Greek grammar, a well-established rule. 
Furthermore, there are tons of other texts in the Bible indicating that Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. Furthermore, there is no discussion anywhere in the Bible of the creation of a lesser subservient God to the Father. That's nonsense. So, John 1, 1 is very clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a lesser God. Jesus was God. And if Jesus is God, Jesus is enough. We don't need anything else. If Jesus is God, he is more valuable than all the money and pleasure and success and sex you could ever hope for. Pursue Jesus. If he's God, he's omnipresent, which means he is always with you. If he's God, he knows all things, including our deepest, darkest secrets. And if you're a Christian, he still loves you and he forgives you. We can hide our sins from our spouse, our friends, our neighbors, our roommates, and our parents. We can't hide our sins from Jesus. He knows all of them, and he still loves us and forgives us. If he's God, he's divinely wise, which means he has the wisdom to untangle your most difficult problems. If he's God, he has unlimited power to help you do what God wants you to do. What's that sin you're struggling with this week where you think, ah, I feel like I keep committing the same sin over and over and over. I feel powerless. You're not powerless. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ, the maker of all things, the divine one dwells inside of you and promises power for you to change. But you have to ask him for help. If he's God, his death on the cross was sufficient, was worthy enough to atone for the sins of all those who trust in Jesus. Not just some sins, not even just the sins that we confess, all of our sins. Dave, does God forgive the sins we don't repent of? Yes. Think of all the sins you're not even aware of in your life, most of them. Most of them, right? We're not even aware of most of our sins. Does God forgive those sins? Yes. All of our sins were placed on Jesus, and he gave us all of his perfection. And because he's God, he earned for us perfect righteousness. Now, is repentance important? Yes, repentance is very important. Because if you don't repent of your sins, God still loves you, he forgives you, but there's going to be a, a relational break between you until you repent. When I sin against my dad, he still loves me, he's still my dad. He's gonna forgive me. But until I repent to my father, my earthly father, there's gonna be re relational tension between us. You gotta repent of your sins and restore that fellowship with God. If Jesus is God, he must be worshiped with every fiber of our being, and we can't play games with Jesus. 
If he's God, you must turn from your sins and trust him. Don't dilly-dally with Jesus. Don't be half in. Be all in because he's God, the maker of all things, the divine one, co-eternal with the Father. So Dave, are there two gods? Jesus is God. The Father is God. That brings us to the third point. First is the eternality of Jesus. Next, the divinity of Jesus. And third, the community of Jesus. What is this community like? It's a Trinitarian community. Back to John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was God. That is God the Father. These words have massive implications for how we think about God. John very clearly says that Jesus was with God. So we have distinction between the Son and the Father, yet they're co-eternal. And the Bible says there's one God. John 1.1 is a crucial text for understanding the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which teaches that God exists as one God in three persons. Not one God in three gods. One God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is equally God. They're co-eternal. They've all always existed. They're co-substantial. They're of the same essence. They're all equally God. God does not exist as three modes. He does not exist as three gods. He does not exist as one person. The Bible teaches that God exists as three persons in one God. And John 1.1 is brilliant. John's words perfectly preserve Jesus' distinct identity while affirming his eternality and equality with God the Father. He could have said it any better, any more carefully, or any more theologically precise. One scholar says this, the simple sentence of verse 1 is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. Jesus was always existing from all eternity as God and perfect fellowship with God the Father and, though not mentioned, the Holy Spirit. He is the cosmic Christ. Dave, this all seems so esoteric. Discussions about the Trinity co-eternal, co-substantial. Let's just talk about practical things. The very essence of Christianity is the Trinity. Christianity is inherently Trinitarian. What do I mean? When we pray, we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are saved, we are saved from the wrath of God the Father through the Son, and we believe it because of the Holy Spirit. When we are adopted, we are adopted by God the Father through the Son, and that's testified to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we read the Bible, the Bible is a message from the Father about the Son understood in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Trinity is the very essence of the Christian faith. This is not just a doctrine to understand, although it is. It's a doctrine to celebrate and rejoice in. Think about evangelism. We are telling people how they can be reconciled to God the Father through his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't evangelize, pray, read the Bible, or get saved apart from the Trinity. This is kind of a big deal in the Bible. And there's so much we could say about this, but um, I'll leave it at that for now. So what is Jesus' community like? It's a Trinitarian community. And the Gospel of John will unpack that in great detail as we work through the book. In addition, it's a loving community. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The preposition with, in verse 1, suggests a close personal relationship of intimacy. One scholar writes, it communicates the idea of nearness along with a sense of movement toward God, the Son moving towards the Father. Another scholar says, the word with indicates that there has always existed the deepest equality and intimacy in the Holy Trinity. In other words, for all eternity, God has existed as a happy fellowship of love. And we see this clearly later on in John, John 17, 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. When? Before the foundation of the world. John 16, 14, we learn that the Spirit lives to glorify the Son. 17.4, we learn that the Son lives to glorify the Father. 17.5, we learn that the Father seeks to glorify the Son. And John 17.5, we also learn that this love has been celebrated for all eternity. The inner life of the Trinity is characterized by love, tenderness, warmth, affection, service, humility, a complete lack of bitterness and anger and selfishness and pride and unkindness. No member of the Trinity demands that the others celebrate or serve him. Rather, they all live for the glory and joy of the other. One scholar says this, at the center of the universe, Self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and circles the others. C.S. Lewis says this, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama. 
The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. The very heart and soul of reality is the divine community of love. When people say God is love, what they often mean is God is really loving or we should love like God. No. When we say God is love, what we should be thinking is God at his very essence is love because of the Trinity. Before all things existed, God was a loving community. Before God created, before God exercised his work of providence, God was love. And by the way, this is why Islam cannot say that God at his very essence is a God of love. Well, who was God loving before God created, if you're a Muslim? But in Christianity, we can argue that God's very nature or essence is love. The Father is constantly loving, serving, and celebrating the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is constantly loving, serving, and celebrating the Father and the Son, and the Son is constantly loving, serving, and celebrating the Father and the Spirit. Imagine a relationship where there was nothing but kindness and love and humility and service and other-centeredness, a complete lack of anger, bitterness, backstabbing, jealousy, envy. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? That's because it's from heaven. In eternity past, that's what God was doing. And God created you to experience this type of love. Out of the overflow of God's love, God decided to create the universe. Why? Because God is shareful, a word that Bruce Ware made up to describe this. God didn't have to create. God needs nothing. But God is so overflowing with love that he wanted to create to share his love with someone else. God created you to be in relationship with that divine community of love. But unfortunately, we rebel against God and we are separated from that community of divine love. And God could have easily left things the way they were and remained totally just and not bringing us back into that community. But because God is in his very essence, love, he was moved when he saw us in our sin and misery, separated from him. So he sent his son Jesus to come and dwell among us. Now here's where it gets really complicated because the divine nature of Jesus never left the Trinity. But the human nature of Jesus came to earth. <laughs> How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> but Jesus exists as one God, I'm sorry, one nature in two persons. I'm sorry, one, that's heresy. <laughs> one person in two natures, that's not heresy. Whew. And we'll explore that a lot more as John unfolds, the person of Jesus. One person in two distinct natures. So Jesus, in his humanity, left that community of love he came to earth, 
and experienced all the heartache and pain of sin. Why? To bring us back into that glorious fellowship of love known as the Trinity. As a Christian, you have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And heaven is gonna be one massive world of love where you are celebrating that relationship for all eternity. And getting back into that came at great personal cost to Jesus. He loves you. God the Father loves you, and God the Spirit loves you. And they want you to join back into that glorious, loving, divine community of love. So we see in John 1, verses 1 and 2, the eternality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, and the community of Jesus. By every objective criteria, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the most influential person to ever live. He currently has 2.3 billion followers around the world. He continues to be the centerpiece of the world's yearly calendar and weekly calendar. More nations in world history, 98, have officially identified with Christianity than any other religion or worldview. There have been more songs, books, and poems written about Jesus than any other person, and it's not even close. Renowned Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan wrote this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of the Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Why? Why has Jesus been so incredibly influential? Because he's not a mere man. He is the eternal one, co-eternal and co-substantial with the Father. He suffered and died on the cross, and he rose from the grave victoriously. As a result, he is worthy of total devotion and praise. Let's pray together. Father, how in the world do we respond appropriately to Jesus? Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus, the perfect God-man, to earth to suffer and die for us. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of singing the praises of Jesus for all eternity. Lord, help us now in this life to give him all the devotion and worship that he rightly deserves. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. Before communion, let's pause for a moment of silent reflection. Ask God to specifically show you how he wants you to apply the message of John 1, 1 and 2.